Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in Omaha, and I'm joined with my co-host Liz Felstrin in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you doing today? Hi, Alan. Doing very well. How are you? I'm good. I should say evening, because it's always evening when you and I talk. It's daytime for me, but evening for you. And you just finished a little little blizzard that took place this week in Israel. I hope you survived. No, no major snowball fights or injuries from snowball fights? We did survive. It, it's amazing how everything is relative, right? Like the amount of snow that in other climates would not be too much of a cause for excitement. Uh, here is, you know, the snowstorm of the century and all the schools are closed and kids are, you know, dying to get outside and play in it. Um, so we definitely had one of those. For us, you know, eight or, or 10 inches is a very big deal, um, even though it does not last long, right? The temperature here was just not one that made it stick around for more than, I don't know, half a day and it was all gone. Um, but while it lasted, it was very pretty and, and very fun for for the kids and also not such kids. <laughs> I think it's great. Um, I remember being in Jerusalem when there was a snowstorm and just the excitement that people who had never seen snow before got to experience. But I also remember the challenges that people had driving um, in the snow. Uh, actually, in Israel, I think they have problems driving anyway, but snow doesn't help. Right. Which is why they close everything, right? Like they just want to make sure that people don't attempt to go anywhere or get on the roads if they don't have to. So they're they're very quick to close schools and, and offices if there's even, you know, a much smaller amount of snow than this one. I mean, in this case, okay, you know, eight eight inches is a lot of snow. It's nothing to sneeze at. But even, you know, an inch and a half here and everything would be closed. I think in the past uh, several uh, episodes of the podcast about a year ago, I think we talked about the water levels of the Kinneret and other water sources. I think that this will probably help uh, increase the water in Israel, or at least the potential for more uh, meters to be filled in the Golan and other places. So we'll have to see. I hope so. Yeah. I don't know if it balances out with the amount of water that was wasted sort of the week before that when I mentioned that with the very low temperatures, so many people had had their hot water heaters or the pipes leading to them burst. Um, and there were a lot of houses that I saw with water just pouring out. Um, but yes, I, I imagine it was still a net gain for for the Kinevit. This looked like looked like a lot of snow. Let's, let's hope so. And we'll check back on that at some point. Uh, we started a, a new topic with our podcast last week talking about TV and film and, and social change. You mentioned several shows uh, and we shared those in the links um, to the podcast. Anything new on the horizon that you've been looking at in terms of social change and TV and film? Anything new on your end? There is. You know, when we ended our podcast last week, and you asked me what other shows that we might put in this category are out right now. And I couldn't think of very many. I, I left 
our conversation and was wondering why why that's the case. Are why are there not more shows with this kind of a social change agenda out right now? And looking into it a bit more, I think there may be two reasons for this. And one one of them we already talked about actually the the move to so much television being consumed through streaming, right? As opposed to on regular cable or television channels. And when you have streaming and that much choice of what you want to watch and when you want to watch it, it means that each show doesn't have the same kind of wide viewership as they did when there were a limited number of channels and you had to watch it when it was on. So I think that is part of the reason. But there's something else that I came across, which has to do with, like all things in the end, sadly, come back to the issue of money. Um, And uh, it seems that in Israel in general, there, there just aren't as many funds available for television and, and other forms of culture and art. And with those limited funds, of course, what drives a television studio, like every other business, is what's going to be profitable, right? And, and what shows are getting the highest ratings. And the answer to that question, whether we like it or not, um, has changed in parallel to streaming growing, we also have this growing phenomenon of reality television. And it seems that reality television, by and large, gets much higher ratings and larger viewership than, you know, scripted sitcoms. Um, And it's also cheaper to produce. In Israel, at least, a a sitcom, they say, costs about 150% of what it costs to put together a reality show. So there are fewer channels and, and studios out there in Israel who want to be making sitcoms at all. And in particular ones that maybe they're not sure how they're going to be received if they really are pushing the envelope on certain social issues. Um, and so it's interesting that we have these two phenomenon in parallel, right? The rise of streaming as to how people consume their television and the shift to higher ratings being given to to reality TV, which um, which reduces the the likelihood of sitcoms being made. Now, it's not to say that reality TV can't be a vehicle for for social change in certain ways, but it's very different, right? It's not like when we talked about shows like All in the Family or The Jeffersons, um, I think that's a very different feel, right? On reality TV, if there is a character from some minority or other group that you're not familiar with, it's, you know, it's just that one person. And first of all, half the reality TV characters, maybe many more than half, are not characters that we particularly like. Um, so, so I'm not sure that it has the same potential. So reality TV in Israel dates back a long time. I think that quite a bit of early shows uh, in Israel were reality shows. If I remember my TV from the from the 80s when there were maybe only one or two channels, uh, a lot of talk shows and some cooking shows and some other, you know, takeoffs of other shows. But uh, scripted TV is relatively new uh, in Israel 
to my knowledge, I could be wrong, but I think that going, if I, again, my, my frame of reference is the eighties and it was back then. For sure. There were shows, you know, news and cooking shows and things like that. When I'm talking about reality TV shows now, I'm talking more like, um, like big brother, the Israeli equivalent, right? You have people living in a house and you can watch them 24 hours a day or I am another very popular one here in Israel. And I'm sure there's some English language equivalent, but like a, it's like race to the million, right? It's like couples that are doing all sorts of missions and tasks to try and be the first to get to some end goal and win, I don't know, some amount of money or fame or something. Um, I mean, those kind of reality TV shows, right? Not not a cooking show or a news show. Of course, we have those as well. And those, you're right, have been on for a very long time. So scripted versus non-scripted, I guess is the way to talk about it. So reality shows are, are not scripted. They're just, you know, live action, whatever. What's right, fun. not scripted. And, and I guess for in a lot of ways, also not paid actors. Right, a news program or a cooking show may not be scripted, but the person who's hosting it is a professional. It's their job to be there. They're getting paid, you know, to be on television. Just a quick aside, as you're talking about financing for shows, um, I was listening to an interview a couple of weeks ago with the producers of Fauda and also the show Hit and Run that was filmed partially in America and partially in Israel, and they said that. Um, doing one episode of Hit and Run was the equivalent of a whole season of Fauda. So wow. just just to do a show in the States versus a show in Israel, it's much more expensive or much more money is spent to produce a show in Israel in the States than it is in Israel, which is why there was only one season of Hit and Run. Um, which mm-hmm. was, you know, very popular film. So right? I'm sure that's true. If, you know, there would be no television shows in Israel at all if it cost what it costs to make them in the States. I am. Yeah, I don't find that hard to believe. I am. So in so in your in the week, did you explore or see any shows that you want to reference for people to look at or? Yeah. So, you know, thinking back and and I don't know whether these two phenomena that I mentioned mean that Israeli television has somehow missed the window for for getting to do this kind of real social change through television. I hope that's not the case because I, you know, I grew up with television that really changed uh, my views and 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 brought me into homes of people who were not like the people in my town or in my neighborhood. Um, and I really believe in it as a strong, powerful tool. And so I hope that maybe there are ways that that can still happen, but it seems like at least for right now, it's less of the direction of what's happening in Israel. But so I was thinking back to, you know, not too, too long ago, but when there were more shows like this and one in particular that I wanted to point out was a program called Arab Labor that was on in Israel. There were four seasons of it between um, 2007 and 2012, and which also points out another really interesting thing of how television shows work in Israel, and I'm sure it relates to the money issue. None of the shows that have been on in Israel for multiple seasons have what in the U.S. you would expect as sort of a normal show cycle. Even before there was streaming, um, 
seasons were never at like regular schedules in Israel, right? You see that even in this show over a period of, you know, six years had four seasons and some of the seasons have nine episodes and some have 13 and some aired over a period of months and some aired over a much longer period. Like it's, it really depends on what, how they're able to make them, which is to a large extent dictated by finance. I feel like in the States, it's much more consistent, right? If you have a show, then it's going to have one season each year, approximately from this month to this month, like there's just much more consistency to it. And here that's not the case. It's sort of never been. Um, I, th- I think in the States, you know, the creators, the actors, the producers, they all sign a contract and agreement of this is going to be the length of the of the series for the year. If it gets renewed, we want you to be committed to it and to come back into production with us. I think in Israel, you know, because the actors aren't making the equivalent of dollars that the people in the States are when they're doing these shows, that they have to get work other places. So they mm-hmm. might be play, performing in a play or they might be, you know, doing other TV shows. So I think the scheduling is a little bit more challenging because the actors and the creators still have to find other sources of income to keep things yeah. going. No, that makes total sense. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's a big part of it. Um but so, but this particular show, Arab Labor. So a few things about it. So one, um, it was uh, created semi-autobiographically by uh, a Israeli Arab Palestinian journalist named Saeed Kashua. Now, some people in Omaha might remember that name or remember even meeting Kashua. He was actually in Omaha in 2015. He spoke um, at an event at Film Streams. For 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 a film actually that he he had written, which is also semi autobiographical, um, and uh, so this show was the very first time that um, a show with a lot of Arab language dialogue was on primetime television. Right. This was in the old din days. This was pre-streaming. It was still on television at a set time. And, and it was in that primetime slot. And it was the very first time that you had Arabic language um, in that slot. So it was a big deal. And it was very well received. It was a funny show. Um, and, you know, uh, I think Saeed Kashua has been described as somebody who uh, is sort of an equal opportunity uh you know pointer out of uh of flaws and willing to make jokes of equally of either sides at either side's expense um and certainly did that in this show we'll put the we'll put the link in actually you can you can see all four seasons um are available online um, so we can we can include that for people. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think any of it has English language uh, subtitles, but maybe people can get a feel for it and see you know a bit of what this show looked like. Um, and actually, even the the Wikipedia page for the show gives you a breakdown of the plot, and so people can get a pretty good sense of you know what happens in this show and and you know what did it look like. 
Um, you said it was really well received uh, in Israel. Was it well received in both camps of the country, the Israeli Arab, Palestinian, and the Israeli, Israeli Jewish um, communities? And were people talking about it at work? Did people have conversations around the episodes um, in social settings? Yeah, so people were definitely talking about it. There was initially some pushback um, from uh, from Arab Israelis or from the Palestinian community. Uh, you know, be, I mean, in part because of the premise of the show. I don't think it's too much of a, it's not a spoiler for anyone because you would know from the first episode anyway, but the sort of main character of this show is a... Um, an Arab Israeli journalist who is trying very, very hard to fit in in the ways that he can in Jewish Israeli circles. And that he has this desire of wanting to fit in and being willing to a certain extent to give up parts of his Arab identity to do so was something that for, you know, for some Arab Israelis was uncomfortable. You know, they felt like, well, why, why should he want to fit in in Israeli and Jewish Israeli society? Why, why does he need to do that at all? But of course, He's a character, and that's his particular, you know, desire. And he's not the only Arab Israeli that wants to do that. Um, but certainly in in Jewish Israeli circles, um, and in the field of professional television in general, the show was very, very well received. It was it won all sorts of awards, um, and. And it was definitely something that people talked about. I mean, there were a lot, a lot of news articles that came out about the show at the time, both in in Hebrew and in English language news. Um, it was in the, um, the you know the Jerusalem Post and um, and and lots of other places where people were talking about the show. Right? It was a it was a big deal. Do you know um, if it, do you know if it had any traction outside of Israel? So again, not really in terms of viewership because it's not accessible because of the language. I don't know that there exists um, a version with English language subtitles. And that would be a great project if somebody wants to do that. Although it's a little hard because the show does go back and forth between Hebrew and Arabic. Um. So I was just thinking in terms of how Fauda kind of took on a following in other parts of the world, not just in the Western world, but also in the Arab world uh, during the first several seasons. It got quite a bit of traction outside of Israel. So I just wondered if this show also had the opportunity to be a communications vehicle on culture outside of Israel. So... To a certain extent, it didn't. And I don't know if maybe that's because, you know, it missed a window in a different way because it was pre-streaming and maybe television wasn't as international back in 2007, 2008 as it is now. If the show came out now, you know, I'm sure it would have been picked up and, and made accessible to, to English speaking and more international audiences. Whether somebody will decide to do that with these back seasons, I have no idea. I um, but uh, but it was compared at the time to it was compared in you know in in English language media in Variety magazine and 
uh, the International Herald Tribune. It was compared to the Jeffersons and it was compared to the Cosby Show uh, because it really did have that kind of a feel of the first time that is that across Israel, people were, you know, into the home and into the family of an Arab Israeli and, you know, seeing a character that they could really relate to. Um, and the the actor who plays the the main character in this show, this uh, Arab Israeli journalist, as I mentioned, you know, he said in a lot of interviews that people started coming up to him saying, you know, I'm Amjad. That's the name of the character in this show. You know, I really see myself in him. Like, you know, I, I get what you're doing. Um, and, and, and I think that that was, you know, it, it was, there was traction, there was movement. No. So was the the actor who played the main character, was he an Arab or was he an, a Jewish Israeli that was playing an Arab? Yeah, no, no, definitely an Arab, right? A lot of uh, Arabic language in the show. Not to say that there couldn't be an Israeli that could pull off that much Arabic, but I mean, there, there's no reason, there's no shortage of, uh, of Arab no, Israeli I- actors. I, I bring I bring that up because I think it's going to be one of our future topics. Is mm-hmm. is it appropriate to cross play? Um, you know, as an actor, is it okay to play one uh, culture or one identity versus a, your own? And how does that play out? I, I think that's a conversation you and I will have moving forward. But I just I think it's great that you discovered or were able to explain or show this new show to us that came out almost ten years ago, over ten years ago. Yeah. For people to take a look at and to see, because I really think that we have an opportunity to learn about other cultures through film, through TV. Uh, and also it's an opportunity to kind of see how a country struggles with some of their identity issues. I think that's part of one of our objectives with this podcast is to help people see what's going on outside of the normal sphere of what they're used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um yeah. And we're not the only ones that think it's a great vehicle for that, right? I mean, the people who made Arab labor, for example, were very vocal about the fact that their goal was to to move the needle, that their goal was to to create social change. Um they didn't they weren't hiding that. It wasn't a, you know, back burner kind of well if it happens it happens kind of thing. It was absolutely one of their goals. Um, Do you know if they've come out with anything, if those same creators come out with anything after that? Um, so actually, it's interesting that you asked. The one thing that I did not get a chance to look into before uh, before we met today that I wanted to, so when I was reading through these old articles um, from when Arab labor was, was on and in the news quite a bit, one of the creators of the show said, that you know that this that this medium is very important to him and and that he really does view television as a, as a way to to create social change and he hopes that they can do more shows like this he would love to do a comedy about ethiopians and i had mentioned last week that there is this comedy uh, that's on now about ethiopians and i don't know if he's involved in it so that you know 10 years ago that the producer of Arab Labor said that he would like to be involved in a comedy about Ethiopians. I'd like to look into whether he's involved with this NEBSO that we mentioned. That, that's 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 a great connection. Well, let us know what you discover with that. <laughs> okay. Anything else you're watching or following that you want to share? 
Um, nothing else is really, you know, like everybody else through Netflix and streaming. I get to uh, enjoy uh, television from all different countries, not just Israel. So I don't know. I have any other Israeli ones to comment on at the moment. Um, I'll just add that uh, next week, the Winter Olympics in Beijing will start. And, oh, I knew uh, you were going to mention that. You're always very big on the Olympics. And when I saw them <laughs> starting, I said, oh, Alan's going to know about this. Um, yeah, I think there are six um, people representing Israel. I don't know if they're actually um, currently living in Israel. Some skiers, some ice skaters. Uh, I think there was a bobsledder who didn't make it into the Olympics. He didn't quite qualify. But mm-hmm. I understand that there are at least six athletes who will be representing Israel uh, in the Israeli bobsledder that's like you know almost as bizarre as Jamaican bobsledders it's gonna make you think of that movie cool well, I think I think that was inspiration for it so I don't they, I have no idea but uh, <laughs> uh, uh so, I'm totally dating myself right this Israeli bobsledder probably saw the movie as like a two-year-old we we will have to we will have to explore that. Um, well, well, Liz, I want to thank you again for you know being available today for the podcast. You're you're always full of enthusiasm and insight on great issues and topics. I love the the topic that we're working on now with culture and identity because that's really how I view um, Israel as being a melting pot of the world and an opportunity to teach others about how to interpret and respect. Uh, people who are different than ourselves and tv is a great medium for that Um, Mm -hmm. right and uh, it's interesting just what i thought of now when you said that that israel can you know teach others maybe something about being a melting pot or being a place where multiple identities and cultures are accepted maybe the the upshot of streaming we've kind of given it a, a a bad name in the past two podcasts, but maybe the upshot is that Israel also has the opportunity to learn from other places about how to accept other cultures and identities. I believe that's a, 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 a challenge that many countries are having, and I hope that Israel will continue to be a resource and a light into other nations, to pull a quote out of the Bible. Here, here. With that, Liz, have a great week, and uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Israel Rebound, a podcast bringing topics together from Nebraska and Israel. Have a great week.